Welcome to Roots in Graffiti. I'm Stephen Eustridge with the Jasper County Economic Development Organization. And I'm Brian Hooker with the Jasper Newton Foundation. This is a short chat diving into the happenings of Jasper County, Indiana. Episode topics range from project announcements to conversations about rural issues. Together, we'll explore and break down what's happening right here in Jasper County. Today, I'd like to introduce Dr. Ken Culp III. Ken is Principal Extension Specialist for Volunteerism in the Department of 4-H Youth Development and Adjunct Associate Professor in the Department of Animal Sciences at the University of Kentucky. A native of Rensselaer, Indiana, Dr. Culp received his Bachelor of Science and Master's of Science in Animal Sciences and his PhD in Educational Foundations and Administration, all from Purdue University. His dissertation was entitled Factors Affecting Length of Service of Adult 4-H Leaders in Indiana. Ken has 34 years of experience in volunteer and nonprofit administration, volunteer development and service activities, and leadership development. His research interests include generational and gender differences, volunteer recruitment, motivation, recognition, and retention, trends in volunteerism, volunteer competencies, volunteer program effectiveness, and leadership development. He also works as a private consultant and trainer in and is a keynote speaker. Ken and his wife, Nancy, are the parents of three beautiful daughters and have two grandchildren. The Culp girls have all been active in 4-H and FFA. Hope you guys enjoy this podcast. We had a lot of fun talking with Ken about volunteerism and, and volunteers in rural communities. So please enjoy. What do you do for a living? Let's start there. So, where, where do you work? Um, I work at the <laughs> University of Kentucky. And I'm principal specialist for volunteerism in extension. And so I work with all extension agents, but primarily 4-H agents, to help them find more effective ways of generating, educating, mobilizing, and sustaining volunteers and extension programs in the Commonwealth. Wow. A University of Kentucky has a similar, is it the same land grant? That, yes. That- Every state has a land grant. Purdue is Indiana's land grant. Kentucky actually has two land grants because there's the 1862 land grant. (laughs) So President Lincoln signed the Morrell Act in 1862, which created the land grant college system. But there were a number of states, primarily Confederate states, that were not allowing African Americans to participate in the land grant program. So additional legislation was passed in 1890, and that was creating separate or but equal. And okay. so Kentucky State University is the 1890 land grant. And so there are, there are a number of primarily Confederate states that have both an 1862 and an 1890 land grant. Wow. Now, if you're interested, there was a third act that was enacted in 1994 that hmm. elevated tribal colleges to partial land grant status. So there are some land-grant universities in primarily the West, the West right. um, where the Native American population was largest. And so now we have 1862, 1890, and 1994 land-grants. Fantastic. I've worked with Extension, just partnership with um, the foundation, sure. but didn't know how much you worked with Purdue Extension, or any Extension. But I know the states also like to partner on things together. So Absolutely. Illinois and Indiana, Michigan, Ohio. Right. Um, A piece of trivia is the University of Illinois and Purdue University, those two land grants are the second closest in the United States. I think Washington and (laughs) Idaho, maybe. They're both on either side of the state line, and they're the closest. 
but U of I and Purdue are the second closest in terms of geographical proximity. Wow. So I guess tell us a little bit about something you're working on right now, maybe in this arena that you're excited about. Well, let me back up. So <laughs> I uh, was born and raised in Jasper County, yep. graduated from Rensselaer and went to Purdue. And it was my intent that I was going to come back and farm with my father and grandfather. Mm -hmm. And my um, dad and grandpa farmed a big farm, 910 acres in Barkley Township. It mm -hmm. was a lease. At any rate, they, they lost the lease while I was it was a senior in college. Oh, and so, you know, I'd kind of been programmed for my whole life to come back and do that. And the environment changed, the right. situation changed. So at any rate, I went to work for the Indiana Department of Ag. At that, that time, it was the Division of Agriculture in the Department of Commerce um, as a livestock grader and market reporter. And I traveled around four days a week reporting on livestock sales. And then the opportunity came up for me to return to Purdue and get my master's degree and coach the intercollegiate livestock judging team. Wow. So I did that for three years and got my master's in rumen nutrition. And then I was interviewing for jobs in extension. So then there was a, a national freeze and there were no extension jobs open for about two years. I owned a home in West Lafayette and I worked for um, Delmer Guard for Young and Guard Hampshires and Yorkshires for a couple of years. And then I went to Extension in Whitley County, Indiana. Yep. And uh, I was a 4-H agent from 1988 to 1984 and our oldest two daughters were born then. And I decided pretty quickly that I really wanted to be a state specialist. That's yeah. really what I wanted to do. So I started, I was 15 miles from IPFW, Indiana Purdue Fort Wayne. Mm -hmm. So I could go over there one night a week and, and take classes. So I did that for two years. And then I had to drive to West Lafayette one night a week. Oh, that geez. got to be hard. Then I had to drive two nights a week. <laughs> and so anyway, um, I finished my PhD at Purdue and then got my first job as a state specialist at the Ohio State University. And so I had a dual appointment in 4-H and ag education in volunteerism. So I really okay. had the same job there that I have at the University of Kentucky. And I worked with extension staff, primarily 4-H agents, to help them develop stronger volunteer programs because extension is a grassroots, community-based organization, right. and we depend on volunteer staff to deliver our programs because each professional can only reach so many people. But if you engage the multiplier effect, I mean, if, if I can reach 500 people, I can reach 500 people. But if I can reach 100 volunteers and each volunteer can reach 25 people, now we're at 2,500 people instead of my 500. Right. And so the multiplier effect works. So I've really made a career out of engaging volunteers or mm -hmm. teaching community organizations how to engage volunteers. Yeah. So the other part of my job that I had pre-COVID was I had this little consulting business and I would fly around the country and around the nation in 2019, I spent a week in the United Kingdom, actually wow. consulting for the United States Air Force, wow. um, talking about volunteer programs. COVID pretty much wiped that out. Yeah. So um, <laughs> since then, you know, there's been more virtual engagement and the volunteer programs have been slower to come back in some community organizations. Absolutely. And the environment has changed. Now, instead of having face-to-face -face interaction, they have Zoom meetings and I'm extroverted enough that Zoom doesn't really work for me. <laughs> right? I mean, it does, but I'm, if I'm going to talk to a, a group of people, I'd rather be in the same room and, and talk to I them. It's not that I can't do the other, it's just that that's not my preference. You can't learn about engaging volunteers by reading about it or writing a paper. You actually right. have to get your hands dirty and work with right. the people. And it's kind of that way. That's my perspective anyway yeah. in, um, in working with volunteers. Yeah, so. That's one of the things that I get 
approached the most about at the foundation is especially our service clubs or those civic organizations how do i get people to do stuff here i mean that's what they it's like there's no there's nobody or how do you do it and and i don't know if covid knocked some of those volunteers out or those opportunities out i just think it we all got used to not doing something for right, a couple right. years well, right and so now do you want to add to your calendar one, one <laughs> of my big so a couple things have happened one of my big clients were um American Hospital Association. One time, every state had a state chapter, an affiliate of the American Hospital Association Auxiliary. And most of those chapters, most of those state associations would have an annual conference. And I think when I was really working on that, I think I spoke to 26 or 28 state association conferences. But two things have happened. One is hospitals have merged and consolidated and gotten bigger. And, And as they get bigger, the auxiliaries tend to get swept away, mm-hmm. you know. And so, for one one thing, there aren't as many of those. And the other thing is that is an aging population. Right. And when COVID came in, that was the most vulnerable population, and they were the first ones to right. step back. Absolutely. And they've been either slow to come back, or now the like I said, the environment's changed, and in two years they haven't really been engaged the same way. So looking for new ways to reinvent ourselves. Yeah, I would say, you know, you work with volunteers in about different generations and their mm-hmm. approach to volunteering and their approach to civic engagement. And I feel like there's a trough right now where there's the groups, not to be rude, but, you know, the lady who volunteered to do everything who looks like she hasn't aged because she's the same grandma when I was a kid. <laughs> and we don't have those ladies anymore. Right. And then there's like this dip of there's no one and then there's me. I'm struggling to get even people my own age with young families at home to volunteer and to jump in. It's difficult because when you talk to those ladies and you talk to people my age, you're talking to two different generations that approach everything differently Right. and the expectations don't match up. Right. right? So the two largest volunteer groups right now are the baby boomers, which were born from 1946 to 1964, and the millennials, which were born from 1980 until 9-11, 2001. And in between are the Gen Xers. I fall right on you're, the 1980 line. So I can be wherever I want to be, <laughs> depending on what you're saying. Okay. <laughs> and so um, the Xers are the smallest generation ever born in this country. And so they're not a generation of joiners. The term latchkey kid was coined to describe that generation because their parents were early boomers. Mm-hmm. And so both their mom and dad, we're painting with white, yep, a wide brush here, <laughs> worked outside the home. And, and the term lanyard had not yet been developed or created. <laughs> right. And so those kids came home after school at 3.30 and they had a key on a shoestring around their neck. And they used the key to open the latch, therefore the term latch key. Mm-hmm. And they came in and there were no computers then mm-hmm. and there were no cell phones then. So they had about two, two and a half hours from 3.30 until 5.30-ish that they were unstructured, unsupervised, they weren't micromanaged, mom wasn't telling them to change their clothes, do their homework, right. and they created another term, veg out and on the couch and relax. <laughs> and so <laughs> no one was looking over their shoulders. Right. So that mentality has carried on. They don't like anyone looking over their shoulders. So anyway, the baby boomers, I'm a baby boomer, we were the largest generation ever born, and we were born into big families, we were educated right. in big classrooms, we played in big groups. We were very team oriented. Right. Okay. So you can ask a baby boomer to serve on a committee, be part of a team, or to join a group. And those are all positive 
motivating factors. You use those same terms, team, group, committee, to an exer, and they're out of here. <laughs> they don't want to do that. You, right. you know, if you're a volunteer coordinator, you've got an exer you want to get rid of, ask them to lead a team or be part of a group. <laughs> right. right. And that's I'm going to take note of that somewhere. And so the, the next, yeah, there you go. there's and a so, strategy there. <laughs> the next largest generation is the millennials, and they were born from noon on January 20th, 1981 the moment Reagan got inaugurated right, right. until 9-11, 8.42 a.m. Yeah. on September 11th. And that's, a, that's an entirely different generation than the generation preceded it. But the word volunteer and service is very, very positive with that group because mm-hmm. they were the first generation to be required to do community service right. or volunteer service as a high school graduation requirement. Right. And that, that generation has always been mentored and they... They see mentoring as very positive. They like to be mentored and they like to, in turn, mentor younger people. Mm. So that's a good strategy to engage that generation. Yeah. They currently outnumber the baby boomer generation because in the 1960s, so many baby boomers had lifestyle practices that weren't very healthy. <laughs> that's a very diplomatic way of saying that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I have some, like I said, civic organizations that are those baby boomers still here trying to get millennials involved Mm -hmm. and trying to make those connections. Let's talk about like meeting times, Mm -hmm. like every third Tuesday at 1 p.m. How does that, who who does that speak to and who gets really mad about that? It does not speak to millennials. (laughs) Right. Uh, So millennials um, are much more time conscious. The term that was coined to describe the baby boomer is workaholic. Yes. We believe that the longer we work, the harder we work, and we're very competitive. Mm-hmm. So me working more hours than you, than you makes me, you know, I, I, I'm a winner. I, I <laughs> work more. And I mean, we sort of neglect our families, but uh, baby boomers also believe that they believe in FaceTime with their employers. And so the baby boomers, during the COVID shutdown, I was the only baby boomer in our office. Everybody else is now younger. Mm -hmm. And even when we were shut down and for 15 months were told really should be working at home, I continued to go to the office two or three days a week. And so I watered everybody's plants when I was there. (laughs) I did learn to do some things at home, but I could be more productive at the office because I have a different mindset when I go to the office. And and again, I'm a workaholic. I'm very task-oriented. So, you know, baby boomers are list makers. We like to cross, make a list and cross things off. And we feel accomplished when we do that. Having a meeting is one of those things. Now, (laughs) millennials are not motivated by that. Um, They would rather read an email or text message, you know, don't schedule a meeting to tell me in 15 minutes or an hour what you can spend five minutes reading in an email. Right. Um, and, and they're very conscious about that. And, and they'd rather, as a generation, they would rather work smarter than harder. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's one thing I've learned. You know, everybody says, well, when are you going to retire? When are you going to retire? Well, it's like I had a retirement plan prior to COVID. Now it's kind of changed. So I, this is off topic, but I've seen a number of my <laughs> colleagues that retired because it was time to retire. I mean, they reached 62 or 65 and that's when you're supposed to retire. So they retired and they didn't have a retirement plan. And I believe having watched them and hopefully learned from their mistakes that in order to be successful in retirement and here I'm I'm not retired. So who am I to say, (laughs) but I think you have to retire to something and not from something. Oh yeah. And I haven't quite figured out what that to something is. I thought I was going to spend my time flying around the world and talking to people about volunteers, right. but nobody seems to be asking me to do that, do that as much as they did in 2018 and 19. <laughs> right. So it's I have coming quite, back. 
Yeah, I haven't quite bounced back from that yet. <laughs> it's coming back, I'm pretty sure. So millennials yeah. work differently. So I, I work harder. You know, nobody works more hours than I do. Right, and that's right, my right. choice. But, but just because I work one way doesn't mean that I expect my children, who are all millennials, to work the same way. And they use technology differently. Mm-hmm. I'm relatively competent with technology, but I'm not an expert. Right. And I understand that. But on the other hand, I have other skills that they don't have. And perhaps never will. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it's different. Right. But now I'm the only person of my generation in my in particular workforce. <laughs> and they all work differently. And that's really appropriate for them. But it's not as much fun for me now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's all good. If these civic organizations and volunteer groups could do a couple of things. Differently? A couple of things differently. Like what would you say? Okay, well, here's one. Yeah. So let's compare volunteerism in the 21st century to volunteerism in the 20th century. And see, now we're we're almost a quarter of a century in. I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, when <laughs> right? I started talking about this at the dawn of the 21st century, that just, that's like, that's a long time ago now. <laughs> um, so anyway, when I was a kid growing up and I went to the Barclay Methodist Church mm-hmm. in Barclay Township, and every church had these bulletins. We still have bulletins, although sometimes the announcements are all on the screen, you know, <laughs> yeah. with a PowerPoint presentation. Right. But we had church bulletins, Okay. And, and you could put an announcement. So there was always on the back page, there were announcements. Mm-hmm. And some lay leader would go up and say, well, our announcements for the week are, they would read the announcements. And so, for example, you could put an announcement in that on Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock, we're going to have a church cleanup. And it was very gender-based. Oh, right, so the women will clean the inside and the men and boys will clean the outside and we'll mow the grass and we'll rake the gravel and we'll trim the shrubs and the, the women will wash the windows and dust the pews and polish the floors and clean everything. And you could just put that one little blurb in the announcements and everybody would show up. Right. Okay. So my point is announcements would get results. Mm-hmm. That is no longer the case in the 21st century. You can make all the announcements you want. You can put stuff on social media. <laughs> the announcements do not get results. If you want H-E-L-P, you have to A-S-K. And Bree, as a married woman, I'm sure you understand that concept. <laughs> all married women should understand that concept. Because men don't read minds and we do not get hints. So, that's a whole podcast episode by itself. That maybe is not appropriate for roots and graffiti, but yeah, that's a real thing. Do that on your own. <laughs> So, so you can't expect announcements to get results. Now, the other thing is people talked about volunteer recruitment. Some people call and say, I need you to come and put on a workshop about volunteer recruitment because we have a recruitment problem. Mm. Okay. Now I've been a volunteer specialist since 1995, nearly 30 years. And I have never once been to an organization that had a recruitment problem. What happens is they have a problem that occurs prior to recruitment. So what happens is people think that the first step is recruitment. I'm just going to go out and recruit volunteers. Right. Well, that's not the issue. And they'll think, well, I've, I've recruited volunteers because I put it on Facebook <laughs> or I put it on our website. That's not what that does. <laughs> putting announcements or putting blurbs in your newsletter or on the radio or on mm-hmm. the community calendar or on Facebook or on a podcast is not recruitment. That's promotion and marketing. Mm-hmm. And I think the most successful recruitment campaigns are preceded by marketing and promotion programs because people cannot be expected to volunteer if they're unaware of a need. Right. People want to help, but before they can help, they have to know what the need is and how their skill set or their ability matches. Now, that's one thing. So, for example, my parents and my grandparents 
all of whom will have lived in this community their entire lives. They're happy to help. They'll do anything for anyone at any time. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, boomers are different because boomers were the most highly educated generation of all time. Boomers were the first generation at which girls went to college at the same rate as boys. Mm -hmm. So the boomer generation became the most highly skilled generation in American history. So it's all about skill set. All right. So if you're going to recruit a boomer, you're going to have to make them understand that their skill set is a good fit for your particular need. My grandma would show up and yep. she would fold newsletters or, she, you know, she would just be glad. Just tell me what to do and I'll be glad to do it. Well, I'm not doing that. You know, I, I, I'm not folding your newsletters, you know, or stapling your stuff or stuffing your envelopes. You know, you you can get community service workers to do that or hire temps or get some high school students or something. Right, right. I, boomers have a different philosophy. And so we have to understand that your need for volunteers pertains directly to me mm -hmm. and that my skill set is a good fit for you. I also find that a phone call goes a long way. Yes, yeah, people, again, or it's lunch. all about personal ask. <laughs> right, It's absolutely. all about the personal ask. That and, and notice too that if you're asking people to do something they're not familiar with to give them an opportunity to experience it first. Right. Where it's no risk, selfish plug here. Like come learn about driving home, yeah. come do this little group work with us and then you'll know exactly what I'm asking right. you to do later. Another mistake organizations make is that two things. One is that they don't define a term of service. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and the other thing is is that some people they, they want to try something out at once. Like ask them to be an event volunteer to help with a fundraising campaign or one activity as opposed to the first thing you're going to do is be on for a three-year commitment right yeah so in kentucky one of the things that i do is i work with all 4-h council so there's 120 counties in the commonwealth and each county has a 4-h council mm -hmm. so i go out and the first thing i ask them to do is, is look i want to see your bylaws and so i said okay tell me what it says about terms well, I mean, there should be a term. I don't care if it's two-year term. I don't care if it's a three-year term. Right. But there needs to be a defined term. And then there needs to be a term limit. Yes. Okay? <laughs> I mean, and, and I think two terms is should be the limit. Now, that doesn't mean that you're done, but you have to take a year or two off. Right. Because I've gone to organizations where the same person has been the council treasurer for 25 years. <laughs> and what happens is that becomes her job. Even if somebody else wants to fill the role, they can't because that would be personally insulting. Right. And that's an insinuation that you've not been effective in your job. Right. And I've been to councils and I said, so what's your term until you die? <laughs> oh, really? Oh, God. What's your term until you find your own replacement? Like. Who right. wants to do that? Right. And yeah. so those types of organizations have a real recruitment problem because right. they said, well, once we get them, we want to keep them. People don't stay married that long anymore. Right. So, you know, I mean, it's, I think you have to start out with small chunks. The way to need an elephant is one bite at a time. Mm -hmm. And that's another way that volunteering has changed. When I first started in 4-H in the Barkley Hustlers 4-H Club, and we still have the Barkley <laughs> right. Hustlers 4-H right. Club. My first year, the, my club leader's name was Ellis Kelly. And his wife, Tresabel, was the club leader of the Mark. They've changed this name now because it was deemed sexist, but it was the Barkley Modern Priscilla's. Wow. So each township had a boys club and a girls <laughs> right, club. Right. We no longer have that anymore. But they both served, I, I mean, better than 40 years. Right. And they were, they, were in a, they were long haulers. You know, they were in it for a lifetime commitment. Right. Well, most people don't want to make that kind of lifetime commitment. 
So, you know, I'd rather love them and lose them after two or three years than <laughs> not have them at all. So, Is that what you'd say? Because the other thing is, why are we losing so many volunteers? Maybe we haven't been taking care of them very well, right? Yeah, so nurturing, nurturing volunteers is extremely important. So my doctoral research, when I was clear back in 1994... I studied um, 4-H volunteer leader retention in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we looked at was we surveyed volunteers that had served three years or less and then resigned for whatever reason. The number one reason given, what do you think the number one reason was? The snacks weren't good. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to, That'd be the reason I'd bail. I just so Two, I, yeah, I don't know. Lack of training. Lack of training. Lack of training. They truly did not feel like they were equipped with the educational resources to do their job and deliver the program. So there's the assumption, I've asked you to join this group, you know what it is, just do right. some stuff, right. right? Right. Which really had a profound impact on me. Yeah. Because when I finished my PhD, I went to Ohio State and I created the Ohio 4-H Volunteer Conference. And the first one was held in 1998. And we had 1,804 people that came from 87 of the 88 counties. Wow. And the next... No, that was wrong. 1,639. In 99 was the second one, and there were 1,804 from all 88 counties. Fantastic. And um, then in 99, I went and I transitioned to the University of Kentucky. And then we started the Kentucky Volunteer Forum in 2000, and we've held it during the even number of years since then. Mm -hmm. So the last one was held in February of this year. Yeah. It's now become the largest volunteer conference in the world. Right. Do you find that effective in in keeping those, especially extension, keeping those groups on track, on target? It's a good way of sharing information. We, we have 21 different educational tracks and people can identify whichever track they want. Mm -hmm. And extension professionals can designate, you know, you're a horse volunteer, so you obviously need to go to the horse track. Right. And uh, you're a shooting sports volunteer, so you're going to go to the shooting sports track. And, um, it, and it, it is a good way of, of sharing new information, of, yeah. of providing continuing education, providing the resources and programming ideas that volunteers need in order to deliver the program and, in our case, serve the needs of kids. Right, right. I just, I'm having other ideas. Like, maybe we need to have a volunteer something, Absolutely. right? Where we yeah. all talk about what we do and share um, different groups and kind of like what the needs are in our mm -hmm. community would be great. So I did want to talk about civic engagement in rural areas. Mm -hmm. The Colt family is a legacy family in our area. Any of those land or animal farming families tend to be legacy families. Yeah. And trying to think about how we engage the people who didn't grow up here. And I think you've hit on a couple of points. I'll just say, like, we just assume everyone knows and they don't. We need right. to not assume things, period. Yeah. Um, but then also, I think those families are in that millennial age bracket where the assumption is, well, we'll just use the Methodist church down the street here for an example. You know, we have these events on these dates always forever and ever. Amen. Everyone knows it. And this is how you help and volunteer. Why don't you just do that? Because right. that's what we do. That doesn't speak to a millennial family either right? right we love living here you grew up here i think there's you didn't but you love it too i've heavily invested in the <laughs> okay. last three years so. you love it too now <laughs> um i think we have a really great community like yeah, we take care absolutely. of each other we take care of, of where we live and i'm really proud of that but how can we get those other people involved well it's interesting so when i go out and speak at a volunteer conference it's generally in a larger population hub mm -hmm. and they talk about the special needs of rural communities and how much more difficult it is to get people to volunteer. Well, that's never been my experience. <laughs> I think it's the opposite. Of course, and I'm from rural America, right, so I, right. I actually think it's easier to get people to volunteer in rural communities because 
people know each other and it's mm-hmm. it's all about the ask it's the right. direct personal contact you just can't send an email out you just can't put an announcement on the radio or something <laughs> in the newspaper you might get lots of coverage but it doesn't yield lots of results i started work in kentucky on june 18th of 1999 but we were still living in ohio and we got our house sold for the second time and we moved in on the 20 no on the 30th of december oh, of 1999 so right before oh, y2k i know right before y2k and my brother made it very clear that by 3 p.m whether we were done unloading or not he was leaving and coming back to rensselaer because he had three hog houses that he had to make sure that the generators were all hooked up on because we all thought that the electrical yes. grid was yeah. going to crash at at the turn of the deck you know the century and so anyway I, I don't remember on what day the first sunday of january was but first sunday of january we went to church mm-hmm. methodist church in nicholasville kentucky and anyway, they had these little blue cards in the bulletin that you're supposed to fill out you know with your name and your address mm-hmm. and your phone number and number of your kids and what service you went to so i dropped that in the collection plate and we came home and we're eating lunch and it's like 12 30 and the phone rings and it's like that was odd because the phone just had been hooked up the day before <laughs> right? nobody had our phone <laughs> i answered the phone so it was a lady named loretta barnes from the first down of church in nicholasville <laughs> and um, she said we're part of the welcome committee oh. and so my job is to is to <laughs> welcome you to our community and so we'll be there in 30 minutes to welcome you. <laughs> oh god <laughs> in the day before i mean there's like boxes <laughs> everywhere well, and you just thought the world was going to shut down yes, I mean, yes. all the things so it's like oh my gosh so we finished up lunch and we kind of cleaned up as much best we could and sure enough in 30 minutes loretta and perry barnes <laughs> showed up at the front door and she it comes bearing gifts and so she has what are obviously a dozen homemade chocolate chip cookies but on a chinette plate in a one-gallon Ziploc bag. <laughs> so I thank her for the cookies. We sit down and we visit, and they were there exactly an hour. So they get up to, to leave, and, and so I have to ask about the cookies. Right. And so I said, well, thank you so much for the cookies. Did you bake them? And she goes, oh, no, 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 no. She said, we want you to feel welcome to our church. We want you to come back. Therefore, I don't bake the cookies. <laughs> so I said, well, they're obviously homemade. Oh, yes. She said, we have a ministry. See, we would call it a program. In churches, right. they call it a ministry. Right, right. She said, we have a ministry. We have the bakers and the takers. <laughs> and so she said, Perry and I are the takers. <laughs> and so to paraphrase... They have one demographic group, which are little white or blue-haired ladies yes, yes. that bake cookies. And they do it in the familiarity and the comfort and the privacy and the safety mm-hmm. of their own home. And they don't measure anything. Right. They just bake these cookies. They cool them. They count a dozen out, put them on a china plate, put them in a Ziploc bag, and freeze them. And then they get six <laughs> stacks of cookies. And on Sunday, they take them out. They carry them to the church, they walk down the stairs, and they put them in the freezer, oh and goodness. their contribution is over. <laughs> right. Okay. Then Loretta 
goes through the blue cars after church every Sunday and she finds out who's new. And she can manage, she can take a, a dozen cookies out and defrost them. And then she's gonna go. So Loretta and Perry are very extroverted. Yes. They're very people oriented and they're at least a generation younger. So they're good with technology. They can program their phone or their GPS. And these little blue haired ladies aren't gonna do that. No, no, no. They're gonna drive from their home to the grocery store, back to their home, and then from their home to church. And so as a volunteer administrator, if I wanted to run the, the welcome ministry in the way that's easiest for me, I would find one person that would bake and take. Right. That would be the easiest. But that's not what's effective anymore mm -hmm. because the way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. So you engage actually a lot more people. So there's, you know, 8, 10, 12 of these women that will bake the cookies and they're happy to do that. Mm -hmm. They donate their time, they donate the ingredients, everything's wonderful, all right? And then you have another group of people that aren't blessed with culinary prowess, but they're good with technology and they're good with visiting people. So it becomes a team effort. It, right. it makes it more challenging um, and more time intensive for the volunteer professional, the director. Right, right. But the payoff is you engage more volunteers and in turn you reach more people. Right, find people where so they So I think in rural communities, the thing we need to do is <laughs> we first have to brainstorm. Is if I go to a group and say, what needs to be done? What are your volunteers? Well, I just need volunteers. I just need volunteers. Well, <laughs> nobody will ever, in this day and age, with, right? the, with this generation, nobody will ever be successful recruiting volunteers or they just say, I need a volunteer. You know, I need a 4-H volunteer. Well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Do you want someone that's going to lead a club? Do you want someone that's going to chaperone a field trip? Do you want someone that's going to take a group of kids from the club meeting to the mm -hmm. fairgrounds? Do you want someone that's going to weigh pigs at the county fair? Do you want someone that's going to serve milkshakes at the Farm Bureau stand? Right, right. In order to be successful at recruiting volunteers, you have to be specific. Right. If you approach a, a prospective volunteers and say, will you volunteer? They're going to want to know three things. What do you want me to do? Mm -hmm. How much time is it going to take? And when's it need to be finished by? Right. And if you can't <laughs> rattle those asters off, they're going to say, probably not. Or I'll get back to you, which right, is which another way of don't call us, we'll call you. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Uh, so you have to be specific. Right. You can't just say, will you volunteer? I mean, if you were to call somebody and say, will you volunteer for the Jasper Newton Foundation? What does that mean? No, right. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's too nebulous. It's too vague. And so it's not asking them to be a volunteer. People want to help. But they want to be asked. And they want, and they want to know what specific job they're going to do. Right. What specific task. What's... What's the goal? What's the accomplishment? What am I going to do? Right. So asking to, to complete a task mm -hmm. today is more effective than asking to be a volunteer. Right. I mean, it's the same thing. And, and that's gender-based, too. You ask a group of, of women, are, how many of you are volunteers? Well, virtually everybody will hold their hand up. Mm -hmm. You can ask, ask their husbands, how many of you volunteer? Nobody. Nobody will raise their hand. Well, what's that mean? I said, well, <laughs> do, do you... Do any, how many of you are active in your church? Do you, I mean, do you sing in the choir? Do you serve on the administrative board? Are you on a committee? Right, do you serve right. as an usher? Do you coach Little League? Right. Yes. Well, then you're a volunteer. No, I'm a coach. Right. It's job okay? specific. So part of it's language. Right, right. Part of it's language. To a man's ear, the word volunteer is something our, our wives and mothers and grandmothers do. Right. So it's asking them to do a specific task or accomplish a specific goal. Yeah. yeah. These are great tips. Yeah. Great tips. Hopefully everyone's listening. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it at this point. <laughs> so you can get rid of people? <laughs> no. That's not nice. So I can engage them properly. 
breathe. engage them properly. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. No, thank you. The infamous question is, and I know that you were very involved and, and raised to be involved in your community regardless of your job. Um, obviously, your job is about being involved. The question is, why do you care? You could just do your job and worry about yourself but you do make and find time to be involved in your community. So I guess what's that compelling factor for you? Well, so Maxwell wrote, I think it was Maxwell, someone wrote The Five Languages of Love. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then there's been a companion piece written to that, The Five Languages of Appreciation. Mm. And so there are, and I don't have these written down, so if I can't rip these off here, (laughs) there's uh, words of affirmation, Mm -hmm. okay? And so that's a good one for me because I'm, yeah. I'm good with words. And, and so I like rewarding people with words of affirmation. Okay. Oh, another one is quality time. Mm-hmm. Spending quality time with a person. Don't give me a gift. Give me quality time. Yeah. For others, there are gifts. Mm-hmm. Some people like gifts. And that's, that's how they like to be recognized. Um, a fourth one is physical touch. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are touchy feely. Some, you know, some have a big, wide comfort zone. Hula hoop. You know, and, but you know, uh, an acceptable way is um, handshake. Mm-hmm. You know, a pat on the back. Some people like a one-armed hug. You know, so right, right. physical, and, and you can make a connection. And the last one is um, acts of service. Yeah. And so I really have two. So I like to give words of affirmation. Mm-hmm. But I also like to give acts of service. Mm -hmm. And that is the house that I grew up in. My parents were both very active in the community Mm -hmm. and they lived to serve. And so my brother and I, in very different ways, we both got that gene. Yep. All right. But it expresses itself in different ways. You know, Kendall is very active in Indiana Farm Bureau, for example. Mm -hmm. And he likes to be active in his community. He wants to make a difference in the community. I want to do the same thing. In 4-H in Kentucky, I studied the impact. Camp is a big part of our 4-H program. Every county has to camp. We have quotas on how many many have to camp. (laughs) And we camp about 12,000 kids a summer in a 10-week period. All right. And so I studied the impact of camping three years ago. And I really don't care about camp. <laughs> Indiana camp in Indiana 4-H is incidental to the program. You right. know, it's not what I grew up with. It's just it's incidental to the program. And I really don't care about camp. But what I do care about is making a difference. Yeah. It's the biggest time consumer of a 4-H agent's life. A 4-H agent spends more time preparing for, executing, evaluating, and recovering from camp than anything else. <laughs> so I want to make sure that if we're going to spend that much time it's actually a good use of our time. It's, right. We're getting the most bang for our buck. And and so that's that's what I really want to care about. That's what I care about is making a difference. And interestingly enough, this is another segue, is that when I studied motivating factors or powerful marketing messages or recruitment messages, there is one message that recruits across all generations, and that's make a difference. Yeah. Make a difference. So people want to make a difference, whether it's in their home or their community or their state or their country. People want to make a difference. And so I think from your standpoint is that we engage more people in the community if we show them how mm-hmm. they can make a difference in their community. Yeah. And some people want to make a difference by going to third world countries or underprivileged nations. And that's fine. I applaud them. I want to make a difference in the community in which I live. Right. Or in my case, the community in which I grew up. Yeah. And so I think as we look at all organizations in the community, that's the one message that resonates among everyone is that you can make a difference. Let us help you make a difference.
Fruits and Graffiti Update. JNF hosted Dr. Ken Culp September 19th and 20th to present two workshops on engaging rural volunteers. Dr. Culp is a great resource for leadership development and volunteer engagement. To connect, please email us at rootsandgraffiti at jaspercountyin.com. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation about Jasper County. For anything related to the podcast or information about today's conversation, you can email Bree and I at rootsandgraffiti at jaspercountyin.com, all spelled out. And there will also be links in the show notes below. Thanks, guys.